Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community, a number of founding teams that have met in there, a number of nonprofits that have been established, a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Gabriel Kra, co-founder and managing partner of Prelude Ventures. Prelude Ventures is a venture capital firm partnering with entrepreneurs to address climate change. Since 2013, they've backed over 40 companies across a wide range of sectors like advanced energy, food and ag, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and more. I was excited for this one because Gabriel and Prelude have been doing this for quite a while, since 2013, and they're also climate-motivated. I mean, that's their sole focus. They're a single LP firm, a very wealthy and very philanthropic family in the climate cause, and they also have been around now through multiple cycles, which means that they know where all the bodies are buried. So I was excited for Gabriel to come on and talk not only about his journey into doing this work and the work of the firm, but also how the work of the firm has changed from when they first started doing this work in 2013 to today. This is one you definitely don't want to miss, and I'm pleased to bring you Gabriel Kra. Gabriel, welcome to the show. Hey there, Jason. How are you? I'm well. So it's been about three and a half years that I've been focused on climate, and I, I met you and the Prelude team very early in that journey, and at that time, you never would have come on a podcast like this. I'll let you know on a secret. At that time, I was jealous of all the people you've been having on the podcast. I, I was just dying for an invite, man. Dying for an invite. Yeah. Well, I have a lot of questions for you. I'm really grateful that you made the time to come on the show. You're such an important perspective for people like me that are relative newcomers to the space to, to understand since you've been at it for so long and doing so at, at such a strategic, well-placed level. Well, thanks for saying that. And I'll return it right to you. I am 
so excited and so grateful for what you bring to the to the climate and climate tech landscape. I mean, I think MCJ and the community, the you know, the Slack community, the things that I see and participate in have just brought so much more talent and so many more people and so much more excitement and enthusiasm into what we're doing that I, I think it's advanced the whole community and effort. I'm grateful for what you're doing. Glad to be here. Thanks for saying that. Well, for starters, we, we like to just start with an overview of, of where people sit. So talk a bit about Prelude and what you do. Happy to. And uh, if, I get just, if I get too long-winded, interrupt if I'm not being clear. I'll go back to sort of a, a little bit of a, an origin story of Prelude. We have uh, specific LPs who are really climate committed. Our founding LPs, our co-founders of the firm, Nat Simons and Laura Baxter Simons, are massive climate philanthropists, as well as entities affiliated with them are our LPs. And I literally went out to lunch with Nat like sometime in 2008 or 2009. I'd known him a little bit personally, a little bit professionally, done a few things with him. And we started talking and he sort of said, look, we are an investment family. We've stood up a bunch of hedge funds and a bunch of investment vehicles. I am, we are now being incredibly active philanthropically in climate, although they were still very quiet about it back then. We should think about what's an investment strategy that we could have in, in climate and climate tech. And that was like 2009. And Gabriel, what were you doing at the time? At the time, I was working at Deutsche Bank. I was in solar and semiconductor banking in the corporate finance group. So I had a great uh, bird's eye view of what was sort of clean tech 1.0. We covered and were active with a bunch of companies there. Before I did that, I was a tech entrepreneur. I was at a couple of hard tech startups, one in the semiconductor space, one in the optical telecommunication space, bringing really hard novel materials to market and I was in the product management roles there. So I had, you know, I was able to bring to that moment a technical background, hard tech entrepreneurship with bumps and scars and bruises uh, and some successes as well. Uh, and then also just financial background, you know, that I'd gotten working for three years at Deutsche Bank. So that gave me kind of just a, I think a, an interesting and broad based background to bring to this effort. But, you know, once we got going in 2009 or in 2010, there weren't a lot of people. Cleantech 1.0 was crashing around us as we sort of started thinking about this platform. And there were not a lot of people who were getting active in climate tech, wasn't even a word, clean tech back then. But we said, we're going to figure this out. We're going to build a platform here. So it took us a little bit, but by 2013, we'd established Prelude Ventures. So one question before we get too far down that path. So prior to, to joining up with, with Nat and Laura, would you describe yourself as a capitalist that happened to work in clean energy or, or a climate warrior that was using capitalism as, a, as, as your mechanism for impact? Like, How did you think about yourself and the decisions that you'd made up to that point? It seems like everybody who is involved in climate and climate tech has an aha kind of moment, right? So I'm going to tell you my aha moment, and it goes way, way back. I grew up on Long Island, and I went to school in New York City. I was not the most outdoorsy person. I was, I always skied. So I'm, I'm still an avid skier to this day. You want to distract me, start talking to me about skiing. I'll drop whatever I'm doing and talk to you about that. 
But my junior year of college, after my junior year, I was driving cross country with a friend. The goal was to get to California where my sister was in school at Stanford. She was getting her PhD. And my grand plan for my summer between junior and senior year was to sleep on her couch and get a job somewhere out in Palo Alto, you know, California, the golden land, and just see a new place. That was my goal. But along the way, we stopped in Yellowstone Park. We got into the park at like two in the morning. I was in a beat up old Honda Accord. So we took the cooler out of the back of the Accord because we, you know, had food and whatever because, you know, we were cheap. We didn't have much money. We stuck it on the roof of the Honda Accord and rolled back our seats so that we could go to sleep because we didn't know where to sleep and we didn't have a tent or anything like that. So we got woken up at like five or six in the morning by the ranger tapping on the window with the kids with the New York plates and said, son, this is bear country. You can't put your cooler on your roof because you're just going to provide a snack for the bears. So now it's like six in the morning and we're in Yellowstone Park. And like that was the most beautiful freaking place I'd ever seen or been. And me and my friend, we spent two days touring around the park, seeing all the sites, Old Faithful, the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, the geysers, the mud pots, everything. And somewhere along those two days, we stopped in and we got jobs for the summer. And I was a waiter in uh, Grant Village in Yellowstone Park, the summer of 1989, after the uh, fires were the summer of 88. And every weekend, I went on a big backcountry hike and I bought a tent. And I bought a sleeping bag and I bought hiking boots and I became like a super avid hiker, trekker, outdoorsy kind of guy. When I graduated from college the next year, I didn't get a job on Wall Street or in tech or in anything. I went and ski bumped. I moved to Breckenridge, Colorado. I got a dog and moved to Breckenridge, Colorado with my two best friends and, and lived there for a while. And then after I did that, I moved to Washington, D.C. with my girlfriend at the time, and I got a job working for Greenpeace. So waking up in Yellowstone, that's my aha moment. And I've been a climate activist ever since. I was, you know, I was arrested at the Washington Monument in a civil disobedient direct action in 1992, protesting Bush number one's lack of action at the Rio Earth Summit. So I go way back when, after a few years working for Greenpeace, I figured I needed to learn a little bit more. I went back to school and got a master's degree in atmospheric chemistry because I wanted to learn more about the science. And like early to mid nineties, it was obvious. This isn't news. We shouldn't be waking up in 2022 saying, why didn't somebody tell us about this years ago? The certainty has been decreasing. The margin for error has been decreasing. We've known about this since the seventies earlier. But the models have been there since the 70s. So coming back around to 2009, when you sat down with Matt at the time and he said, look, we've got deep pockets and we're philanthropic and, and climate's on our minds. Like what, what was the pitch at that time about what you would do together? There wasn't a pitch. There was a, a brainstorming. You know, I said, I would like to come help you figure that out. I will do that with you. And it was incredibly collaborative. And, and it took us a while. So now, you know, I've worked a bunch of startups. We liked that approach. We thought it was an interesting place. And we thought it was a place where we could put meaningful dollars to work and have a big impact. And it took us a few years to get to where we were, but we established what we now call a climate tech venture fund. By 2010 or 11, we were investing. We did it out of a, a bunch of different kind of vehicles. But by 2013, we'd established Prelude Ventures and a dedicated fund with LPs to do it. Fast 
forward, you know, well, we don't need to fast forward. You know, back then we weren't the best at what we were doing. We were pretty much the only ones at what we were doing. Well, those are the same, right? If you were the only, then you were the best by default. Yeah. <laughs> there were a few other people doing it, but there were not a lot of people out there, right? Like if I walked into a room, I had to explain what we were doing when I said, we're investing in the low carbon economy. We're investing only in clean tech. You know, that's our mission. We wake up every day thinking about it. We wake up every day wanting to have a huge impact. And the tool that we have is venture capital and, or that the tool that we're implementing in the struggle is venture capital. And our core belief is that everywhere you look, nothing in our economy for 200 years or 300 years since the industrial revolution began was, was created with the cost of CO2 and CO2 equivalents in mind. We're polluting the atmosphere and there's a cost to that. We've recognized it with sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere. We've recognized it with contaminants in our rivers and streams. There's a cost to doing this and nothing was built with that cost in mind. So there's tremendous opportunities everywhere you look. And that's where we want to invest. But now we want to build big companies. Like if you're focused on a company that has an impact when it's successful, then you can make the financial success of that company your impact measurement. In 2009, when you were just getting going, what was the landscape in relation to the, the Kleiner green growth and the Solyndras and, and that whole wave? So had that already happened and crashed and burned or just from a timing standpoint, where were you relative to that and how much did that factor into your thinking at the time? God, it's hard to remember all the details. I don't think green growth had been established, I think, but maybe they had, or maybe they were sort of coming together right around that time. 2009 was the center of the financial crisis. And so the spit hadn't hit the fan yet with all of the ARRA money that had come in. And I think that was the vehicle that put the money into Solyndra. So that all hadn't happened yet. So yeah, 2009 with Aura and the money that started still was still going into the clean tech 1.0 companies was still a somewhat optimistic time period, even though the financial crisis was immense. And then by like 2010 or 11, things were really starting to go south. I think I remember it was it must have been in 2011 where we invested in some solar companies. And then it must have been April of 11, where the polysilicon spot market prices crashed. I don't know if people remember that moment, but that was a signal that things were about to shift dramatically in Cleantech 1.0 or had shifted already and you'd missed it if you hadn't seen it. And so from 2011 to say 2012 or 13, companies were really having trouble fundraising. That continued through, I don't know, 2016 or 17, there was this five-ish year period where getting any funding into companies was just a real hard slog for everybody. So that time period was the heart of the kind of the dark, quiet years for clean tech and climate tech, 2011 to 2013 or 2015. You know, Solyndra is a, the poster child for the, the loan program. And certainly that was a financial failure, but that loan program, even in those days, it was in the black, right? So it, there was, that was a bad loan. A lot of things that that loan program did were dramatically successful. They helped 
Tesla get to its first manufacturing stuff. And, you know, Elon Musk on the stage at the uh, ARPA-E conference announced that he was going to pay back all those loans early, right? Like that was, there were some dramatic successes out of it. I think we shouldn't just remember Solyndra and a failure there. That program did a lot of good. And, you know, fast forward to now, Jigger Shaw is taking it to brand new heights and new places that are really exciting. Now, you you mentioned low carbon economy. One of the challenges about climate investing is that the low car- essentially the economy needs to move to low carbon economy which means that climate isn't a sector it's it's every sector so when you were just getting going how did you think about generalist versus specialist from a sector standpoint from a stage standpoint from a check size standpoint were these initially financial investments or was it more about learning like how did you start how did we start it's a fun question and long pause because I'm trying to really recall how we started. The first thing I did is I set up an investment kind of committee with both people inside and outside who I convinced to help us out so that it wasn't just me running around chasing down good ideas or bad ideas and you know putting money to work without a team. I believe strongly in the powers of teams and the powers of groups of people to come to better decisions maybe than an individual will on, on his or her own. I still remember the first deal we did, and it, with your permission, I won't even name it, but one of my advisors, one of the people on that investment advisory committee where I was really passionate about putting it forward said, yeah, well, you know, everybody's first investment is a disaster, so you might as well do this one. He didn't like it. It didn't go well. The company didn't succeed. Uh, we've learned a lot from that. But even from that moment, everything was economic. We were always a financial investor. We always viewed ourselves as investing in a, with a theme. You're right, it's not a sector. There's a lot of sectors that you can invest in, but we were investing in a theme with a mission that was guiding what was inside or outside of that theme, but we were financial investors. The only metrics that we put on the fund is the return. Uh, you know, the venture level return of the fund. I am very proud to say that we invested, you know, Prelude 1 or Prelude was an evergreen fund. We're launching now investing out of a new fund with our same exact LPs. That's going to be a a different fund structure. But Prelude 1, the evergreen, that thing is going to return. It's going to be a top decile uh, kind of level return, maybe top quartile depending because it's been a crazy bunch of time for venture capital as an asset class in general, but investing in only companies that are low carbon companies, climate tech companies. I'm incredibly proud of what we did and we made mistakes, we had successes, but we were always looking within that North Star, is this climate positive? Does this get CO2 and CO2 equivalents out of the atmosphere? Once it passed through that gate, now we're talking purely a financial exercise. So when you assembled that initial committee, how much of that committee was helping you on the financial side to make sound investments versus on the impact side to assess whether it's actually going to have the stated impact on the problem? In those earliest days, that was all just like an investment committee. That was that they were, they were the investment committee. Is this, you know, I, we did a bunch, I would do a bunch of work and present it on the impact side. And so, you know, that was definitely paid a lot of attention to and they would read my memos and we'd discuss that. But they were giving me feedback on, on the finance side. There's a guy who's a really good, experienced Valley BC, another guy who's a multi-time successful tech entrepreneur. 
they advised us and then I would work through the deals with them and with uh, our LPs because at that point we didn't even have the fund structure established. But they were financial. They were looking at it from an investment perspective and advising us on that. And so how did you know at that time if something cleared the impact threshold? You know, sometimes it's really easy to do that. And especially in the early days, we weren't pushing corner cases. I'd say on that, we would look at a solar generation technology company. And it was pretty easy to do that. There was another company that we did, you know, that was uh, reducing costs in solar. Um, and, and if, you know, reducing costs makes something more accessible. There was like a building technologies company where you could document how much less waste was generated on a construction site. Very easy, very quantifiable measurements. Early on in Prelude, uh, we did something that was then called Yurtle, now called Trove, right? Uh, about the circular economy. And I don't remember when that was, say 2014 or 15. I'm not sure when we did the uh, participated in the first round into that company. For us, we're like, this is a corner case. You know, reusing stuff instead of buying it new, like that's a corner case of what we are going to do. Well, now it seems blindingly obvious that the circular economy is low carbon, right? Like if you look at the metrics on how much stuff we throw away every year, especially clothing, everything, the embedded energy in manufacturing is immense. But back when we did that deal, we were like, oh, is this really clean tech? Is this really decarbonizing? And we did a bunch of work and we convinced ourselves that it was, but at that point, we thought, oh, this is kind of an edge case. Now it feels like squarely in the middle of a great way to build a company that has a big impact and also makes money. Did you have rules, Gabriel, coming in about what you wouldn't do? Yeah, yeah, we did. We didn't have them when we started, but we talked about it a lot. And a couple of things I think we were really smart on, you know, back in 2010, natural gas, kind of the, the shale gas boom was just getting going. And everybody was saying, like freaking terrible, clever marketing. Gas is a bridge to a clean energy transition, which I think is total BS, right? Like, like just to be clear. And we spent a bunch of time. I saw this company that was a really cool and interesting company doing profits for natural gas fracking. And so we had a debate. Would we do profits for natural gas fracking? And we decided, no, we don't want to do that. That's not clean tech. We also saw companies back then that were cleaning up coal plant emissions. And I'm going to separate that from a similar conversation we had years later on point source carbon capture. But this was just like a technology that you could put in a flue stack that would make the coal burn cleaner and therefore you hypothetically get more energy out of it. And we're like, you know what? We're not going to, you know, we thought about it. We looked at it. It was the first time. We're not going to do anything with fossils. We are like, you might be able to make an argument that cleaning up coal in India and China and even in the US back then is a better, it has a huge impact. You might make that argument. We're not going to do anything with fossil fuels. And now that sounds again, blazingly obvious. In 2010, there was still some genuine public and academic discourse on that. So that was one hard and fast rule that we never, never wanted to cross a line over. Aside from that, we made a commitment to sort of probe and look and be open-minded about opportunities. And I think that has served us well. 
And you talked about won't do's on an impact side. I have the same question more on the financial side. So how do you feel or how did you feel, because we're still in the early days here, but in terms of our discussion focus, about science risk or capital intensity or reliance on future policy? All right. So three totally different buckets. And everything I'm about to say, I've probably made a mistake on each of these metrics. Sometimes it's hard to separate science risk from engineering risk, if you know what I mean by that. And you think that you're tackling engineering risk, which is something that you can accept, but maybe there's something about the science that isn't known or proven. In those scenarios, this is a debate, an ongoing debate right now, is that a risk, a science risk we're willing to take, right? You don't know if you can improve this thing on this metric, which is crucial for the economic success of this company. And I can think of examples in our portfolio right now where we've done it, even though we see that risk and where we've chosen not to do it, where we see that risk. But what you're going to get is a really repeated, boring answer from me. You have to invest in the team and the entrepreneurs. You have to believe that they can solve the problems. Because whatever you think at the series seed or series A of a hard tech company is going to be the path to productization of the technology that you're looking at at that moment, whatever you really think about that is wrong. And it's the entrepreneurs and the team they assemble in the company who are going to solve those problems. That very earliest company I've referenced, or one of the earliest companies I referenced is called Plant PV. It was these two guys out of Stanford. Craig Peters and Brian Hart. And they wanted to build stacked PV silicon cells. They wanted to add a layer on top of your crystalline silicon cell to enhance the efficiency. And I didn't know if that idea was good or bad, but I knew that they were crazy smart, crazy dedicated entrepreneurs. The idea totally didn't work out. The economics you know, were crushed by just the decline in the cost of crystalline silicon cells that we all know about. And then they pivoted to inventing a paste that removed silver content uh, from the manufacturing process of manufacturing crystalline silicon cells. And we sold that company profitably for them and for us as an investor. It wasn't a huge exit, but everybody made money. That had nothing to do with the thing that we did a seed investment on back in like 2011 or 2012. But what I did the diligence on was those entrepreneurs. So that's how I think you need to address science and tech and engineering, but at the end of the day, better do your diligence on your team to address that problem. You asked what, about future regulatory? Capital intensity. Yeah, and specifically, like, let's say there's a little bit of equity and not a lot of project finance, for example. Yeah, well, look, uh, we've done it. We're not shying away from capital intensity. There's two types of capital intensity. The one you just described And also just like some things are going to take a lot of capital to scale the company. It's hard to remember, like right now, a great team with a big product, you know, going after a big outcome can raise a lot of money at an equity level to do what they want to do. We have a couple in our portfolio, Form Energy and Ultra Long Duration Storage, Electric Hydrogen, who's doing green energy electrolyzers. And I don't want to come on here and tap my portfolio, but those are just the one, you know, couple that come to the top of mind. Like they're raising a lot of money at the company level to solve really hard problems. That wasn't possible back in 2000. 
10 or 12 or 13. We were investors in a couple of battery companies back then, and they managed to do it, but it, the capital wasn't as available and you had to be much more cautious. And, and some companies failed for lack of capital. A lot of them did. So that's a shift. Nevertheless, we were willing to take on that kind of capital intensity back then. But how we worked with the entrepreneurs to build the companies differed. Back then, it was like, what incremental proof point are we getting to that's going to enable us to raise that next increment of capital to continue the business development effort? How can we stretch this capital absolutely as far as possible? Let's stretch the dollars, not minimize the time. That's kind of a trade-off you might think of in a, in a big picture. Now, with a really good team, you can do other math. You still have to really be careful with your dollars, but you can say, what can we prove that enables us to unlock these bigger pools of capital from these other investors who are in our ecosystem? And you actually still need to be cautious and careful stewards of your capital, but you can think a little bit differently about company formation. My advice, whenever somebody asks me, should we be taking this much money at that price? My answer is just a yes, right? Because like eventually good times stop, eventually markets dry up a little bit. And if you're, you know, my advice to my entrepreneurs and to other entrepreneurs is like, don't be penny wise and pound foolish, you know, arbitrarily without talking to any specific instance, if you can raise $50 million uh, at that valuation, why not raise 60 or 75 if the markets will give it to you? Don't be so shy of that dilution. Give yourself the resources you need to build a really big, successful company. So capital intensity on that metric, we were always willing to accept it and willing to write checks into those companies. And we have some track record in the, you know, say 2012 to 15 or 17 timeframe where we were amongst the only one or two or three backers of companies that couldn't raise outside capital in those times. I think the right now we're in a much better capital and raising environment, but yes is the short answer. Capital intensity on the project side is a different beast. There's also much more money there available. And I go back and forth on company and entrepreneur specific, and we can spend some time there if you like, but I go back and forth on how to structure the cap tables of companies that are really project development oriented with a kernel of you know equity needed versus companies that really need to do a lot with the equity, you know, meaning build a really hard to build product that takes a lot of money to do the first iteration of it. That's a different economic decision versus a company that doesn't have that much to do on the company side, but then needs to figure out financing on the, on the project side. They're two different beasts. Well, I have different questions that would take us in very different directions. One is, would you invest in domains where you don't have experience or expertise? Yes. Even in my partnership, people have different attitudes towards it. And again, it, it comes back to the entrepreneurs and the entrepreneurial focus. Well, you say that, but I guess one question for you is how to stage factor into that equation. It sounds like people above all else, but, but is, that, is that relevant at a certain stage, but there's more, you know, but domain expertise was required at X stage and beyond, or are, are there at least guidelines, if not rules? There's guidelines. Well, look, we want to be a series C and series A investor, you know, like those things mean different things. So I'll even be specific. We want to invest, you know, seed stage investing nowadays feels like companies are calling $5 million rounds and above still their seed round. 
So we want to participate in those and we'll write a three, you know, if you're doing a four or $5 million seed round, we'll write you a three or $4 million check. We can do that. And we will do that. And frankly, for a fund that's a, a you know, $750 million fund, writing a three to $5 million check, you can take some real chances there. So, you know, if I meet the entrepreneurs and they tell me a compelling story and I do some real diligence on it, I can get there pretty quickly on that. You know, these days, Series A companies are raising 20 million bucks. So, you know, for your fund math, you want to write a 10 or $15 million check into that company. You got to do a little more work on that. And probably you've got to be a little more knowledgeable about the industry or have to take the time to learn it. But again, it depends on the entrepreneur. You know him well. I'm good friends with Matt Rogers of Nest fame. And when I got the chance to invest in his latest venture, I just ran as far, fast as I could and put, you know, put as much money as I could into it, right? Everybody wants to invest in that team. And I didn't know a ton about the industry. I learned a lot and I had a lot of value to add as an investor to them, I believe. And you, know, you could ask them, that would be a better metric of that. But that's a, a much easier equation. Great entrepreneurs going after really big, hard problems, it's easier. So there's guidelines, there's rules, but I think the best investments are made by a combination of technical work, diligence, understanding the market, but then your heart, you know, you've got to believe in and trust the team that's going to build that company. Switching gears a bit, Gabriel, you mentioned that when you were getting going, you weren't the best, but you were the only, and increasingly, you are far from the only. Do you know as well as I do, there's a new fund that's being announced almost every week. There's a, there's a lot of shifting energy and attention. So the generalist firms are looking to do more in this area. There's dedicated climate funds that are getting set up at, at every stage. So I have two questions there. One is, how do you feel about that in terms that capital inflow, in terms of our ability to address the problem? And then separately, more selfishly, how do you feel about that from a prelude standpoint in terms of what that means for, for you and your firm? Both good questions and not so different answers, but I'll get, into, I'll get into some things that may be, you know, ruffle a few feathers at least on this one. Generally speaking, though, it's great. We need so much money to solve this problem. And it's not just venture dollars, right? We need venture dollars. We need project dollars. We need construction finance. We need infrastructure dollars. And it's not even a venture problem. We're going after a segment of the solutions, but you know, we need to be building as much solar wind. I think we need to be building nuclear and I'm talking fission, not fusion. I think we need to be building all sorts of infrastructure enhancing. Because you think fusion will never get there, Gabriel, or, do you th- or because you think it would actually be detrimental if it did get there? No, I'd love to see fusion get there. I believe it probably will get there. Even the most optimistic looks of fusion are like, we're not going to be deploying this. Right? It's not a carbon impact in the here and now, right? Like we need to be building this stuff today, tomorrow, throughout the 2020s into the 2030s. And I think the fusion will provide cheap or at least baseload energy, but it's not going to be doing it at scale until 2040 or 2050. And that's just too late. I think all that money coming into the sector is great. You know, and the fact that we now compete for deals where we didn't have to like, just, you know, grow up, you know, of course you have to compete for deals. That's good for the entrepreneurs. It's good for the ecosystem and it's good for us, right? Like, would I rather be in this environment than the environment we were in from 2013 to 2015 or 16 every day of the week, 24 seven, because 
the companies that I want to participate in and invest in and the entrepreneurs I want to support, they're going to be more successful because of this ecosystem. So glory, hallelujah. I mean, like unabashedly. I have a lot of fears and concerns. I think there's a lot of investing going on that is not based on the economic value that the company is creating over a reasonable time frame. I think there's a lot of money that's coming into the sector that is not bothering to do the work to under to know and understand how the companies are built and how companies are built and scale. And I think that is going to bite a bunch of people and investors and companies in the behind over the coming years. And so I worry about that. We have constant conversations around valuation. We've seen this in other sectors before. We've seen it in clean tech before. I think we're seeing it in the public markets already. And in my experience, and you know, I've been watching this for 20 plus years, I'm not the most seasoned veteran in the room, but I've been watching startups and valuations for a good while now. You know, what goes up does come down. And so the, the public markets trickle down to the private markets and valuations and availability of capital get affected. So I, I, have, a lot of, I have a lot of concerns there. But that's layered on top of incredible enthusiasm and, and gratitude that so many more people and investors and entrepreneurs are coming into the sector. And at some point, I'd love to talk about that. Because I think the biggest change, I could rattle off a bunch of changes from 2010 to 2020 or 2012 to 2022, but the biggest change that I see and the most exciting thing, the most positive, the most climate positive thing, as well as outcome positive thing, is the people working in the sector today versus 10 years ago. The people meaning the, uh, which aspect? Is Is it the volume of people or what do you mean? The volume of people, the commitment of people, the folks who are tech, you know, traditional tech entrepreneurs, like we were talking about earlier, who are coming into the sector, students at, you know, the top tier universities who are now deciding with their feet where they're going to work or what kind of companies they're going to found are incredibly exciting. I spend time at Berkeley, at Cal and at Stanford, you know, have since we started Prelude and even before. In 2010 and 2012, if you went down to a clean tech event at one of those campuses, yeah, the room would be full with 20 or 30 students or maybe a few more, but everybody wanted to start the Web2 companies, Facebook and Twitter, that generation, you know, Salesforce was already established, but taking off. In 2010, everybody wanted to start the next Facebook or Twitter or something akin to that. And I looked at that and I said, God, we got this huge problem. Why aren't you starting companies in our sector? We don't have that problem anymore. And that's really exciting. I went down to Stanford. Uh, I don't know if you've had uh, Dave Danielson on the podcast. He's the former undersecretary of energy for EERE. He's now at Breakthrough Energy Ventures, an amazing guy. He teaches a class at Stanford with a few other people. That is where the students go and do uh, projects you know, that are about a startup you know, and then they do a bunch of work on the startup and then they present it. And I got to go and be the judge there. And I've done that a few times. I think I did it once earlier for that class. And I've done it at a similar class at Berkeley at Cal. And the caliber of the students and the caliber of the ideas, the sort of innovative, thoughtful things they were bringing to the table was exciting. 
And these are students who weren't just taking this as a class. These are students who want to make this their career. And I spoke to another person who's a friend of mine, Alicia, who teaches us a class in law and climate and finance. And, and she teaches it in the law school, I think, and it's about finance and climate. And I asked her, how many of your students end up getting a job in a climate-related field? And she's like, over 50% of the students who come through my class and are getting climate-related jobs. So that's the indication that I'm talking about. That influx of talent into our sector, it's not that the people working here 10 years ago weren't talented, it's that there's so many more of them and so many more people are realizing that this is something to focus their career on. Uh -huh. And I had Jager back on the show recently, and one of the things he was talking about was just how the incentives of venture as an asset class really aren't aligned with uh, scaling meaningful climate innovation and that we need to stop thinking about things with fun life cycles and exits and things like that and think more about, you know, how to build infrastructure that lasts for decades or centuries or or things like that. Do you worry about that? That that venture, although I mean you mentioned it's a subset, so there's some acknowledgement that it's not gonna save the world on its own kind of thing. But but is I mean, is it is venture by definition, greenwashing? No, no. Maybe you're, you know, you're you're teasing me or provoking me, but I don't. I, mean, think... I do it, so obviously I don't think it. But but I'm still asking the question. I know, I know, I get you. I know, I get you. But uh, I'm kind of smiling and grinning here. But I absolutely don't agree with the statement that venture is not suitable for solving climate-related problems. I also wouldn't agree if anybody made it with a statement saying venture can solve all of the climate problem. Venture is really good at some certain specific things. When you have a core technology or business innovation that you can invent something, be it you know, invent and patent, invent and trade secret, or just invent a, a kind of think through a new way of doing something, that you can have a proprietary moat around, right? That other people can't immediately copy and blow you out of the water with more money. And then once you've created that, once you've invented that uh, and you've built that moat, you can take in a bunch of money and scale that thing really rapidly. That's what venture is good at. So if you have something that's just like project development oriented from day zero, Maybe you shouldn't be trying to raise money from venture capitalists because what I want to do is I want to put in my $10 million into your company and I want to see that thing go to $200 million, which means you got a 50, 30x the value of your company over time. And you only do that by creating something new and disrupting something, which is great. And a bunch of that stuff will help us solve climate. Think about what Tesla did. Tesla didn't become the most valuable car company in the world, it's more valuable than like the next eight or 10 or something like that. They proved to the world that you could make an electric vehicle that people wanted to drive because it was more fun, more attractive, more sexy. They made a sector viable. And now that sector is going to take over all of uh, passenger vehicle transportation in some recognizable time frame. We have work to do to accelerate that. We need government policy, we need money, we need regulation, but like the speed isn't inevitable, but the transition is. That was a venture, a huge smashing venture success. Think about 
what the folks at Sunrun did, right? They came up with like business model innovation and were really good at it. And they did it better than SolarCity and Vivint did, right? But they figured out how to economically attractively put solar and now batteries on people's roofs and in their homes and make money doing it and build a big company. They're having a big impact and they're creating a big company. That's venture. You know, I can rattle off more examples where venture is massively successful and going to be massively successful with big companies that have big impacts, but it alone won't solve the climate. And what Jigger's saying about infrastructure and decarbonizing infrastructure and making it last for a long time, because that's actually fundamentally decarbonizing things. If you don't have to rebuild, all that embedded energy doesn't get used. That's not a venture problem. That's a different problem. And we need different pools of capital to solve it. And we need to solve those too. It's yes and not no the other. So bringing that back around then to venture, at least at the earlier stages, given that it sounds like, at, at least from, from your view, it is so people-focused. Is it the same sport as a more generalist tech fund in terms of what Prelude does? And, and that, like, if I'm a generalist tech fund that decides I'm climate-motivated and either wants to bring in a climate partner or shift my focus to do more investing in this area, or maybe even be, be dedicated, like, am I equipped or do I need to bring in different competencies than, than exist in my firm already? I think you're equipped generally, probably. Maybe a 10-year fund isn't the perfect vehicle, but the dirty secret is there's 10-year funds with two-year extensions that get another three-year extensions. You know, I think there's a lot of things that have lasted 15 years in venture. So I don't think that's a fundamental barrier. I think the core competency of building companies, you know, helping entrepreneurs build companies is what a good venture capitalist has and brings to the table. I think a good VC firm that's a generalist firm has that there already. And I think, though, there are some things you better think through and learn. You know, hard tech companies, you know, companies that are building physical systems, companies that are working on biology, you know, like companies that are working on electrochemistry and batteries, you know, those things scale and grow differently. Uh, and I think that was a lot of the mistakes of clean tech 1.0, where people expected them to scale similarly to a SaaS company. So they have some learning to do, but yeah, they can come in and, and probably do pretty well. The pattern recognition is valid, but getting the pattern recognition and learning the new industries, learning the new technologies, it does take time. And I, I've heard some people say that if you have expertise, let's say in ad tech, that instead of shifting and trying to build a climate company, you should just make as much money as you can and give it all to climate causes if, if that's the cause that you care about the most. Do you think that's good? Does that resonate with you? Or what would you tell that person, that aspiring founder coming from, say, ad tech as an example, asking that question? I would say, come talk to me because I can slot you into a whole bunch of companies where your skills will be really valuable and really needed and where you could help build a big company. If you want to be a founder, you know, like if you're wanting to launch your own thing, then there's things to be done there as well. Climate tech is so broad. There's so many opportunities that to build a successful company that actually helps to decarbonize some massive segment of industry, that I think you can find a great place to, to park those talents and build something meaningful. Another question that's been on my mind, I want to be careful with how I phrase this. In some ways, it takes blind optimism to 
head down the entrepreneurial path. And so people that have been too close to a problem for too long and seen it not work are sometimes, sometimes that's valuable institutional knowledge and it's productive. And sometimes it is PTSD that can be inhibiting because it's the cynicism that even if it's justified, pretty much guarantees failure before you even get out of the gates, right? And so given that, the new blood from Silicon Valley, I would say a lot of it, as you were talking about, one of your fears is that it's this blind optimism and it's reckless and it's too cowboy and not doing the work. How do you balance that as it relates to how much DNA, you know, experienced domain DNA versus new DNA? Yeah. There's a bunch of stuff that I think I'm going to miss when the successful company comes around because I'm looking through yesterday's glasses. What are some some examples of sectors where I'm really nervous that I have just that wrong filter on? There is so much both embedded energy in buildings and actual used energy in operating buildings. And I've seen so many companies struggle and die on that hill. Somebody's going to crack that nut and build a big impactful company. There are probably a bunch of big impactful companies, and I'm afraid I'm going to miss it for exactly the reason you just outlined. We institutionally had some success in early biofuel companies. We were investors in Salzheim, and that eventually went BK. But you know, if you were a venture investor in there, you, you had the opportunity to make money. We're currently investors in Zymergen, which is has, having its own public company struggles. I think there's huge, huge successes still to be won using bio to make materials in some sense or another, or fuels or chemicals. And I'm worried that, again, I'm going to struggle to see it having you know, been through a bunch of cycles with a bunch of companies there. We look at waste, waste to X, you know, like waste to anything. And we've seen a bunch of failures there. We actually had the opportunity to invest in something that we took recently, but I had to really convince my partners why this one was different because we've all seen so many failures there. So it's a really good, good question. And I think that's another reason to welcome not only the new blood institutionally, like new firms, but also new people at your firm and younger voices and less jaded voices. I'll even reference a specific company that had this exact same conversation internally. We were talking in an early board meeting about at electric hydrogen, which is making an electrolyzer to make green hydrogen. And we were talking like, God, there's a lot of industry vets who have been around PEM and electrolyzers and fuel cells, you know, where we could pull from, but they know all the old ways of doing things. And they know all the ways that haven't really produced the economic breakthrough that we need. And we had a lot of conversations of what's the right ratio of gnarled industry vets to green technical younger generation people to people pulling in from totally different sectors to help build that team. And I think if you look at how some of the other big successful clean tech companies have been built, it's been by carefully managing a seasoned, experienced engineer, scientist, biz dev person, but putting also combining them with people looking at with, with clean eyes, new eyes. It's, it's a, you got to constantly reinvent and rethink. Gabriel, I want to go back to something you mentioned before, which is that you won't do anything with fossil fuels. I want to just push on that a bit. Are you talking about fossil fuels or fossil fuel companies? The former. The former. I think, look, we're co-investors with a bunch of the venture firms on a number of companies. I think it's, you know, from a some sort of philosophical perspective, people 
think of it as a bitter pill to swallow that, you know, the big oil giants are going to make money cleaning up the mess that they made. You know, that's somebody, you know, that's a definite perspective that's out there. And I can empathize with that feeling. I can say, okay, I get that. On the other hand, we don't have the time to waste and we need money and expertise from all sorts of industries and sources. And so we go into that conversation pretty pragmatically. But uh, what, I'm, what I was talking about is we don't want to invest in something that's going to make oil or coal or natural gas cheaper or last longer. And we have, we've had a couple of opportunities recently where we've had to stare down this decision or that decision by a company could do that. And are we comfortable with that? Yes or no. Or is there a different way to attack that problem? And, you know, think about things within our portfolio, because it's a different thing once you're an, an investor and you're a director and you have a fiduciary responsibility to the company and to all the stakeholders there. It's a different thing at that moment, even than when you're making an investment decision. I'll just bring up one example, just a pressure test, but pl like plugging methane leaks in, in pipelines, for example, uh, is that something that you would stay away from due to principle? That God, it's it's a hard question. So I'm going to start somewhere that's a little bit easier, but still hard. You can use methane. Forget burning it. You can use methane as a feedstock to do all sorts of really interesting things, and some of them are climate positive. However, you can even if you invent the most remarkable and best process for how you what you do with the methane, if your upstream leakage isn't taken care of and accounted for then that's probably a climate negative solution. And you, I'm talking well to where, you know, well to use, right? So even if you have the best thing to do with methane, whatever that is, you know, methane paralysis to make hydrogen, the, you know, the methane plant, you know, that the DOE funded to do carbon black and hydrogen, you know, if your upstream emissions aren't accounted for and properly accounted for, then that might not be the best climate thing, or that might be a climate negative thing. And so we have looked at and we are not yet comfortable uh, investing in those sorts of companies. Now, what you said, would you invest in something to plug methane emissions? That gets even tougher and tougher. We probably wouldn't do it. We could probably justify not doing it over economics. You know, like, is this going to be a big business? But what's the point of doing that? Is the point to change the whole methane, you know, natural gas delivery system so that it is all leak proof and therefore you can green that and then you can capture everything and you can stop burning methane? I would find that a very dubious climate proposition. Uh, you, somebody could convince me otherwise. I would really be a skeptic if you were to tell me that we can actually make methane from wheel to point of use, let alone whatever that point of use is, green, not leak. I think that's a really, really hard engineering problem uh, and system problem and human nature problem. And I'm not convinced that you can do it. And I'd rather spend my climate dollars and my dollars elsewhere. I want to switch gears a bit, and this is another one. I don't know quite how to ask succinctly, but, I mean, you mentioned that you're essentially single, single LP. I mean, there might be different entities, but at the end of the day, it's family wealth. And that there's a profit motive from that family wealth, but that the family was very philanthropic and that it seems like maybe profit, and correct me if I'm wrong, is not the primary motive for the, the capital. So there might be profit expectations, but it's coming at it from a missionary standpoint. The reason I, I bring that up is that if you take a typical institution, you can look at, say, a pension fund as an example. And, uh, you know, I, I've never raised an institutional fund. So, I mean, caveat, caveat, right? But, but, you, but like, if they're strictly return focused, you can call it mercenary, right? But then they'll remind you that 
it's not actually mercenary because these are, you know, these are like people's pensions and retirees and things like that that they need to protect and maximize because these people needed to live. So by being return-focused and mercenary, it's actually being missionary in a way. But this case is different. And, and so I guess what I'm asking, and that was a long-winded way to ask it, is what is the difference in terms of you and your team and your ongoing operations having the single LP that you have versus if you had a more traditional structure with lots of institutional LPs? When I uh, started, before we created Prelude, when I started working at what eventually became Prelude, there were a couple of investments, kind of side pocket investments that I was kind of handed the mandate for. And one of them we wanted to sell and get the family out of. And I got a close friend, a bit of a mentor to come in and help me with that process, you know, who ran a little boutique bank. He came and we sat down and I explained where I was and what I was doing. And he met some of the principals and he looked at me, you know, like a week or two later and he smiled and he said, Gabriel, don't fuck this up. This is the most amazing opportunity you'll ever get. So I recognize, I don't have all your answers. I recognize that we are incredibly lucky. We are incredibly fortunate at Prelude. We have, like what you said, mission-driven limited partners and capital, and we work within this amazing structure, this amazing family office structure, where we get to wake up every day and think about helping solve climate. That's what we get to do. What a privilege, what a joy, what an honor. And I'm not being flipped. And we get to do it in a way that we have actually all, one way or another, dedicated our careers to. Venture investing, building companies. So for us and our fund, we are a returns-driven fund and our limited partnership agreements, documents, we don't talk about the climate side of stuff. It's all about the fund and returning it and thresholds and you know, economics and legal points of how you call, invest, return, distribute capital. So like for me, there's no contradiction there. There's just an amazing structure. And I'll bet that if you look and talk to many of the climate other the other climate ventures firms around, they have their version of that. Our structure is unique, but that aspect of it, I'll bet, is not unique. I've said this to friends, and I don't quite know how to say it, so excuse me if it comes out wrong, just like you said, you didn't know how to ask it. I think if you're like an engineer in the early stages of your career, and you're going to work in an oil and gas extraction industry, you're kind of kidding yourself if you're saying that that's just a morally or neutral thing. Like there's something not right about that. Now, I get people need jobs and I get people have to do it. So maybe it's not the college engineer who just needs, you know, somebody coming out or the oil rig worker. I'm not talking about him or her. But like at some point, if your job is just pumping out and you're a senior exec and you've got money and you're secure and your job is just pumping out the next barrel of oil, there's something there for me that I find difficult. And so to that LP, who says, we're just doing this for the grandmas and the grandpas and the retirees, you know, it's their pension funds. Yes, you are. But there's a lot of study that says you don't need to be invested in these industries to this amount to guarantee that return. Jeremy Grantham, 
you know, the Grantham Foundation published work, you know, sort of on a decade by decade, like you couldn't find a period of time where there's a meaningful impact returns uh, if you just took energy, the energy sector, out of a basket of investments. I don't have that at my fingertips, but it's really powerful. So in this day and age, I like to say my investment decisions as a limited partner in funds is ethically climate neutral thing and it's for the betterment of you know widows and orphans and you know like that old phrase about you know those kind of stocks i don't buy it well there's a couple other areas i want to dig into and uh i know we're running up on on time here but one is just related to what we were just talking about there's these words that get thrown around catalytic capital additionality concessionary capital. I mean, if I'm hearing right, it sounds like it sounds like you don't really fit into any of those boxes. But how do those words resonate with you? Are there any of those that are that are kind of, I don't know, maybe I'll just stop there. Like just like speak to those words and, and whether you identify with with any of them. Look, I guess we do think about additionality, but the way we think about it is the but for test, meaning but for my dollars will this thing exist or not exist? That's a sort of an additional additionality test. We don't do that. Well, you can't if you're fighting for deals with Andreessen and Sequoia. <laughs> <laughs> no, you cannot. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And that's the new environment. But what we do is we say, is this going to have, when it scales, a meaningful impact on CO2 or equivalents in the atmosphere? And we don't have a numerical gigaton metric, but we do dive into that really carefully and thoughtfully. Concessionary capital? No, we need our return. Like That's why we're investing these dollars. These dollars were entrusted to us to return uh, a venture level return. You know, We need to take that money and return like three times that amount after we return the capital to our LPs to be really successful at what we do. And that's what we're aiming at. So we're not conceding any return there. I think concessionary capital has a place. And, you know, in my personal activities, I might be a source of concessionary act capital at a, a very low scale. And, you know, in another world, I could have a lot of fun working in that field, but that's just not what we do. Uh, and then catalytic capital, same thing. Like, that's not what we're doing, but you can recognize that if we invest this, and I can think of a bunch of firms who do it and do it really well, that will spur other groups to come on in. That's a really important segment of the capital stack and, and hard to decarbonize markets. I'm on the board of Activate, which is the nonprofit that works with Cyclotron Road and a couple of other programs. You know, that's some version of catalytic and concessionary capital in some sense. I'm on the investment advisory committee for a prime coalition, same thing. And I love those things. I love those efforts and they're part of the ecosystem and I'm grateful that they're there. But that's not Prelude. The last topic area, and this one's also a sensitive one, but I think it's an important area to delve into, especially as a couple of white guys sitting here, and that's that some people say that we aren't going to be able to decarbonize effectively without also ensuring a just transition, and that you cannot decouple diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice from carbon. How do you react to that statement? In broad strokes, I think it's pretty true. I think, did I just equivocate? In broad strokes, I think it's true. You look at who is impacted by pollution, who is impacted by 
extreme weather, who will be impacted by where you site factories. Like, I guess that's part of pollution. It's communities of color. It's economically disadvantaged communities. It's the broader, more diverse communities who aren't represented in the power structures and economic controlling economic institutions uh, globally. And when you look at the effects of climate change, there's going to be a big north-south imbalance. There's going to be a big developed world versus developing world imbalance. And then also where you looked at where it came from, it's the same thing, but in the other direction, right? Like, I don't know when the crossover comes, but the biggest emitter historically was the United States and Western Europe's a huge emitter and China is now a big emitter. And the countries that are going to suffer the most, you know, beyond just the, you know, within our own borders are countries and populations that didn't have a hand in creating the crisis. So I think the first question, how do I react to that statement? Yeah, I, it's true. And you can't, you can't separate those two things. How does that manifest as it relates to looking inwards at, say, your team composition or the composition of your portfolio? And how much of a filter is that or should it be when making investment decisions? It is a filter. It's something we look at and think about, especially as we now have the opportunity to expand our team in the in the coming year or two. And it's, a, it's something we take really seriously looking inside at our team. And then the other thing is when you expand your portfolio, yeah, we also have to be thinking about it there. It's something we want to get better at. I don't think we're great at it right now, both as an industry, but Prelude specifically. And it's something that we want to work at and get better on. I don't think it's in any way in contradiction to the economic motivation that we were talking about earlier. In fact, I think it can be an enhancement to it if you think about it and implement it properly. And I'd say we're still working on how to be better at it. The last few years were some real reckoning, I think, for a lot of people in terms of thinking racial injustice, you know, like the George Floyd murder happening in the middle of the COVID pandemic sparked a lot of people to get really introspective and thoughtful about stuff. And we're not at the end of our journey uh, internally or as a broader industry. I mean, Prelude or as a broader industry. My last question is is just taking a step outside of Prelude and just looking at the ecosystem overall. If you want more small, high growth, early stage innovation to happen, be successful and have the biggest impact on climate that it can, where are the gaps? Where are the bottlenecks? Where are the opportunities? What are the things that would help you and I and anyone that's focused in this area do so faster, more effectively and more profitably? And with a bigger impact on the problem. Climate tech, venture capital is doing a good bit and it's doing its part and it could use more money and maybe some better regulations and some more governmental support, you know, around the edges or better policy and things like that. The DOE and ARPA-E and lots of public-private partnerships and philanthropic dollars are working on that. Not enough. But this problem is bigger than that. We need national action. And by action here, I'm talking about government policy, local state policy, federal, state, local policy and regulations. We need national. We need international action. We need things like a price on carbon. We need regulations that make a clear, lasting, endurable, understandable roadmap for how we uh, as a national and international community are going to account for the damage we're doing when we put CO2 and CO2 equivalents into our atmosphere. When I say we need to account for the carbon 
yes, I'd love to see a price on carbon. I would love to see that. But that's not the only tool and that's not the only mechanism. I'm not a policy guy. I don't have the nuts and bolts at my fingers of specific policy recommendations to make here. If I step back and say, what do we need to solve this problem? It's concerted international and national effort um, that we don't yet have in place. Our last two questions, Gabriel. One is just, who do you want to hear from? How can we be helpful to you? You know what I really want to do? I'll tell you what. I want to figure out how to work with more younger, newer entrants into this field. I want to support people coming into the field, and I want to support young entrepreneurs and people from diverse backgrounds. And I want to hear from people who who want that support and want to tap into some of the experience that I've had over the last 15-ish years in this sector doing what, what I'm doing. The only thing I can't promise in return is that I'll respond to your email in the next day or two because, God, that, that inbox is a demon. Uh, last question is just, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have, or do you have any parting words? Uh, you didn't ask me about skiing, which would have taken us a whole nother hour and a half. No, Jason, my last parting words are thank you for the energy and the new institution that you've created at MCJ, both on your podcast, the Slack channel that I go to every other day and wish I had more time to just talk to and read and communicate with the people there and for the investing and networking and connecting, I think is what you talk about. And it's one of the biggest advantages. So that's what I'd like to end with. Thanks a lot for having me and thanks for doing what you're doing. Thanks, Gabriel. This was awesome. Yeah, likewise. I'll talk to you soon, Jason. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.